Welcome to the Good Land Project podcast. I'm Matthew Kaywood, and today I'm talking with Canadian Mark Schatzka, who has just released a new book called The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavour. Mark is an award-winning food journalist whose work has appeared in New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Condé Nast Traveller, and Best American Travel Writing. He's a radio columnist for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and also writes for the Globe and Mail and Bloomberg Pursuits. Mark's first book was published in 2011. It was called Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. I'm not sure that you can can have found that piece of beef, Mark, because I don't think your quest brought you to Australia. I knew you would say that. Maybe you're saving us for the sequel. Steak is the sort of book you would expect food writers to write because it finds its inspiration in taste. The Dorito effect takes its inspiration from the lack of taste in so much of today's food. Mark, welcome to the Good Land Project. How does a food writer get so excited by tastelessness that he writes a book about it? Because tastelessness is so pervasive. Um, you know, very often food writers are interested in writing about delectable food and what's good. And at a certain point, I start to ask, well, part of what's motivating that is the fact that there's so much food out there that just isn't very good. Um, so much food is plain and boring that it leads us to seek food that excites us. Uh, and one of the things I wondered was, you know, was it always this way? And why is it when you visit countries like Italy, so much of the ordinary, plain and boring food seems so wonderful and so magical that you can enjoy simple delights there, like just eating a tomato or a tomato with a little bit of olive oil. Whereas it seems here, we're so often trying so, so hard to make food seem other than ordinary. I think anyone of a certain age or anyone who's grown up on a farm knows that taste has gone AWOL for much of our food. We know things have changed, but we don't really know why. How did you quantify taste's disappearance? Well, at first it was purely personal. Like you, it was something I noticed. I would notice if I, you know, you go to a farmer's market in the summer and eat a tomato and it was incredible. Um, oh, uh, but then so often the tomatoes in the supermarket were anything but. Uh, what I didn't realize was that there's a very rich scientific literature on this. This has been documented. It's been explored. Um, we just haven't talked about it much. Let's talk about chicken. I, I grew up rarely eating chicken. And when we ate it, it was a casserole or fricassee because we only ate the old hens before, shortly before they were due to get Alzheimer's. Now we all eat chicken all the time. Can you talk about what's happening to the chicken as an illustration of what's happening to food in general? Chicken is a great example of how we've changed food. We still think chicken is chicken. On some level, chicken still looks like chicken, although if you look closely, the chicken of today, in fact, looks quite a bit different than the chicken of 50 years ago. But what we've done with chicken is um, we have really cranked up output. Uh, we have more chicken than we ever had before. Chicken is a lot cheaper than it ever was. And uh, we, as a result, we eat lots of it. Um, but to put it in simple production terms, chicken matures about three times faster than it used to. Um, it eats a great deal more in terms of uh, how much it might eat in a particular day, but over the course of its life, it actually eats quite a bit less. Uh, they are considered to be very feed efficient. Uh, chickens can convert feed into flesh at a rate of about two to one. So two kilograms of feed to one kilogram of flesh, which is considered very efficient, our most efficient uh, terrestrial livestock. Um, so that's how we've changed chicken. Uh, we have, we got really good at making lots of it. Um, there's other ways we've changed chicken that we don't really talk about. 
Uh, one of them is nutritionally, chicken is fatter than it used to be. There's much, much more omega-6s and far less omega-3s than they used to be. It's less nutritionally dense. And the thing that's the most interesting to me is that chicken is so much blander than it used to be. In fact, if you try recipes that were popular for chicken, say, 50 years ago now, it will not work. Uh, we need to really blitz our chicken in flavorings, in spices and herbs and marinades, uh, you know, bread it and deep fry it, put barbecue sauce on it, because it tastes like, uh, like a wet paper towel. It, it tastes like nothing. I think um, I think most people would be incredulous that chicken with just salt and pepper would is a is a culinary blast as you say it was um, pre-war. Well, I, I mean, I'm I'm tempted to turn around to you. Uh, you you say that you didn't you rarely ate chicken growing up, but I'm going to guess that those fricassees made with those old hens were terrific. They probably were. Sadly, I can't remember them. I think um, my my chicken tastes have been uh, corrupted along with everyone else. So I'm since reading your book, I'm really keen to find a small, scrawny, genuine, <laughs> genuine chicken. And have you found it? No, I haven't. But I haven't been looking. I only read you. I've only finished your book a few days ago. But um, the quest starts here. Good. I think it's fair to say that a retired professor called Fred Provenza is the book's central character. Uh, let's call Fred an animal behaviour researcher for convenience, but I think that's a pretty misleading characterisation of the places that Fred's mind goes. I've met Fred when he's been in Australia talking about how animals negotiate the landscapes they inhabit through their palates, and that's also an inadequate description of what Fred actually talks about. I'm going to be writing about his ideas on the Good Land Project, and I hope to catch up with him again when he visits Australia again early next year. How did you come across Fred, and what role did he play in the Dorito Effect's central thesis? Um, I came across Fred when I was researching my first book, Steak. I had spoken to many animal scientists and forage uh, and grazing experts, and they said, oh, you got to talk to this guy, Fred. And I talked to him uh, towards the end of my research, um, and he gave me some very interesting insights on how the chemical, nutritional, and flavor profile of the very same plants can change depending on where they're growing, one valley to the next. This was interesting to me when I was researching steak because it taught me that there is such a thing as terroir in steak, that you can take uh, two animals, let's say twins, genetically identical steers, for example, and if you raise them in two different valleys, they might be eating uh, almost the same species of grasses. There, there'll probably be some different ones in there too, but what really influences the way they taste is where they are raised. This is an idea that we talk of an awful lot when it comes to wine, that uh, let's say a Pinot Noir from Burgundy will be different than a Pinot Noir made in New Zealand. Um, but what was very exciting to me was that the same thing is true of steak and beef, that when animals eat the food that grows around them, it is reflected both nutritionally, but also in terms of flavor in their flesh. Um, that is really where the seed of this book was planted. Um, so it didn't take me very long to continue the discussion with Fred about the relationship of flavor to nutrition. Initially, I thought it was just kind of a, a fuzzy, you know, in nature food that is flavorful. There's also nutrients there. What I didn't realize was this, that this is such a, a dynamic relationship that infuses all living things. And it tells us so much about ourselves, what we like, why we like what we like, and also what we've done to corrupt that. So Fred 
was an enormous influence on my thinking. My hope is that Fred will be an enormous influence on everyone's thinking because he is a profound and fascinating person. He, yes, he is indeed. Mark, you provided some arresting nature notes that I'll read here. On the Scottish island of Thula, sheep engage in one of nature's greatest, greatest affronts to vegetarianism by eating baby arctic terns. Red deer on the Scottish island of Broom graze on puffins, and caribou on the shores of Hudson Bay have been observed ravaging the nests of snow geese for their eggs, and they spit out the fuzzy little chicks because it's the shells they're after for the calcium. And these are examples of what Fred calls nutritional wisdom. What is nutritional wisdom, and where has it gone in humans? Nutritional wisdom, very simply, is the idea that our palates, uh, what we like, the foods we want to eat, and the foods that we crave are in touch, there is a relationship to what our bodies need. Um, this idea in human nutritional circles is very much not in fashion. We tend to think that our cravings are out to kill us, that the food we want to eat is the food that's bad for us. Um, so yes, not fashionable. Um, it seems paradoxical that we would be wired uh, or programmed, you might say, to kill ourselves, but that's our present view. Um, I think, in fact, the two views are not irreconcilable, uh, and that is so much of what my book is about. Um, very often the foods we want to eat in today's modern food environment really are the foods we should not eat. But so much of that is because we have corrupted nutritional wisdom by creating foods that give us false signals, that give our bodies false information about the nutrients that they contain. And I think that by looking at that, we can understand so much of where our food system has gone wrong. Okay, well, this is that is the um, the core argument of the Dorito effect. I think most of us are aware of how much flavouring is in our food, but I certainly didn't realise just how much. Can you attempt to give us an understanding of how sophisticated the flavourings industry is, and how profoundly it's hijacked our tastes? Yes, uh, the the best way to do it is through history. Um, for the vast, vast majority of human history, uh, we had no idea what it was in food that made it taste the way it did. We simply knew that an orange tasted like an orange, and that oranges were delicious, and that a roast chicken tasted like a roast chicken, uh, and that a mango tasted like a mango. It wasn't until the mid-1950s that the first device went on sale called a gas chromatograph, and what it does is it lets us analyze the tiny, minute components of, of any organic thing. So finally, we had the ability to see what uh, compounds were in an orange that made an orange taste that way. And the same was true for ro uh, roast chicken and cherries and everything else. And it wasn't long un until after we figured out what these chemicals were that we began knocking them off and producing them in huge volumes in factories and then adding them to food. Now, there was a flavor industry prior to the 1950s but it was incredibly simple compared to the flavor industry of today because they only had a handful of chemicals that they'd sort of stumbled on by accident that might taste like banana or cherry or something like that. But with the gas chromatograph, they could get incredibly exact. They could, it became possible to create a, a, an utterly convincing knockoff of flavors like orange, vanilla, cherry, roast chicken, and that's when we started to see the flavorings in food appear. I called my book The Dorito Effect because the very first Doritos were just salted tortilla chips, and they didn't taste, uh, I mean, they tasted just like you can imagine, salted 
fried triangles of corn flour. They didn't sell all that well. It wasn't until they added flavorings that made them, the first flavored Dorito was taco, then came nacho cheese, and it was these chemicals, the flavorings added with things like uh, yeast extract and MSG for that umami kick, suddenly you could make a triangle of fried cornmeal taste rich and savory and have that zing that made it made them irresistible. And it's flavorings that have utterly transformed the food we eat. And we don't just find them in junk food and soft drinks anymore. We find them in everything. I can go to the supermarket now and find flavorings in soy milk, in butter, in pasta sauce, in frozen pizza. I've even seen them in herbal tea, of all things. And beef. And beef, and, and even in raw chicken. You can find raw chicken that has flavorings. The chicken companies know how bland their chicken is, so they've taken to adding flavorings to it. But guess what? When you add the flavorings back to a chicken, you're adding some flavor back, but what you're not adding back is the nutrition. That's an interesting point. You pointed out that there was a flavorings industry pre-1950s, which was the spice industry, which uh, was enormously lucrative for hundreds of years. And you, you suggested those spices actually represent nutritional wisdom, that they contain things that our, our bodies want. Yeah, spices are a really interesting question. Um, th and the question is, why do we like herbs and spices? It it's peculiar because we humans can sometimes be hostile to, um, to eating our vegetables. Uh, we certainly don't eat the kind of plants that goats and sheep and other more dedicated herbivores eat. And yet, some of the most chemically rich and strong tasting plants and seeds in the forest we find the most attractive. Not all of them by any stretch, but we have these very particular tastes for certain seeds and certain leaves that have profoundly strong flavors, and we call them herbs and spices. One of the interesting things to consider is how chemically rich they are. Um, we, we tell us the, ourselves this story that the reason people always ate herbs and spices was to preserve food in the tropics. Well, that doesn't I mean, that might, and on some level it makes sense that you can use these things to preserve food, but that doesn't explain why you or I like the way they taste. And one of the things I explore in the book is the reason we like the way they taste is because on some level, they're good for us. And there's, there's some literature that explores those health benefits as well. It's not, um, it, it's not just a sort of a cockamamie idea. This is something scientists have looked at seriously. How effectively do modern flavorings persuade us of their authenticity. Uh, you're a food writer, presumably you understand or know what real flavor is. Are you persuaded by artificial flavors? Uh, you know, I'd like to tell you that my sophisticated palate is capable of seeing through all these uh, deceptions, but the truth is the, the point of flavorings is not to utterly convince you that this is an orange or uh, that this is chocolate. It's just to make you like food. And in that regard, they do a very good job. If you think of soft drinks, if you think of a grape-flavored soft drink or an orange-flavored one, they don't taste convincingly like orange juice. I think most people could, could taste a, um, an orange-flavored soft drink and orange juice and tell them apart. But the point is, they make them taste good. They push those pleasure buttons. Fred Provenza talks about a concept he calls deep satiety. Can you explain what that means and what it means in, in regards to the Dorito effect? Uh, deep satiety is the idea that foods or some foods can satisfy us in a deep and lasting way, that they 
they meet our needs on multiple levels. So they, they meet that need for deliciousness as you're eating it. But then following the meal, they they keep you satisfied. You're not hungry half an hour or an hour after eating. You're 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 complete. Um, you're you can wait the you know through that span of several hours until the next meal. Uh, the idea is that these foods have a lot going on nutritionally, not just calories, not just protein, but um, vitamins and minerals and other plant compounds that that keep a body nourished. Right, and and um, deep satiety in your experience and as you relate in the book is found uh, in complex, uh, nutritionally rich foods. Yes, it's certainly not found in the junk food aisle. Um, that's one of the most interesting things to me is that uh, you know junk food and fast food you can you can kind of binge on it. You can you can put down a staggering quantity of calories and then just an hour later you'll be hungry again, which is amazing to me. You link that to a lot of our health problems. Can you just talk about that for a moment? Well, our major health problem is as much as, you know, we're all nervous about vitamins and am I getting my vitamins and this and that, but the real health problem in the modern developed world is too many calories. Uh, obesity in North America is the number two preventable cause of death after smoking and the number one preventable cause of disease. So calories is our big problem. We're all very concerned that there's some kind of vital missing nutrient in our food. We get we get concerned about vitamins and minerals and things like that. But our problem is not micronutrients. Our problem is macronutrients. We eat too many calories. And this is where flavorings come in. Flavorings incentivize food in an unnatural and deceptive way. Very simply, they get us to eat food we wouldn't normally eat. And to understand this, ask yourself, how many potato chips would people eat if they weren't flavored, if there was just potato-flavored potato chips? How, how much uh, soft drinks would people drink if you took the flavorings out? A can of Coca-Cola without the flavorings would be a can of soda water with six tablespoons of sugar. I don't think people would find that an awfully delicious drink, and I don't think people would drink much of it. So in that regard, flavors, flavorings get us to consume the wrong food and consume too much of it. And that, of course, is the central um, argument of the Dorito effect, that uh, this, this giant hijacking of our tastes is, is occurring with uh, pernicious effects. Yeah, and think of it this way. Think of something like blueberry. We love blueberry. Blueberries are delicious. If all there were to eat were delicious blueberries, then when you got a craving for blueberries, a desire to say, oh, I feel like eating blueberries, that would take you to blueberries. And you would have a snack that does, yes, have a little bit of sugar in it, but it's got lots of vitamins and fiber and antioxidants. In fact, blueberries have even been shown to turn off the hunger light, uh, that they, they, they can uh, help us reach this state of deep satiety. But now think of what the blueberry craving, where that leads in the modern flavored world. That can lead you to a blueberry sugary drink, that can lead you to blueberry yogurt, which has very few actual blueberries in it and lots of sugar. It can lead you to blueberry ice cream. So in that regard, you can really see how flavorings take us to the wrong nutritional destination. I'm gonna make a leap over some really good stuff about toxins, which aren't always toxins, and your noble quest to put together a meal of the most flavorsome ingredients in the known universe, which was um, a challenge in itself. I'm going to land at the end of the book, and I have to confess to some mixed feelings about your conclusion. 
Early in the book, he wrote, apropos of human nature, we are all natural reductionists. We always want to find the single cause of this or that problem because then it's easy to come up with a silver bullet solution. And your conclusion to the Dorito effect was to hand over the entire problem to the plant breeders. Why is this not just another reductionist silver bullet solution? Because plant breeders, plants are complex beings. And when we, uh, it's very difficult to create a plant, let's say a fruit or a vegetable, that is as nutritionally dumbed down as a processed food. So if you look at something like tomatoes, um, over the last 50 years, our tomatoes have become nutritionally reduced as well as they've lost a lot of flavor. Um, well, what's interesting to look at in the tomato is that there is an intimate connection between the flavors and the nutrition. So in many cases, if you want to get the flavor back in a tomato, you do so by getting the nutrition back in a tomato. So it's a win-win. It's better for you, but it's also more delicious. But let's just say all you did was tweak the flavor of a tomato and leave everything else the way it was. That would still be the modern tomato, as nutritionally enfeebled as it is, and it's I mean, it's not that enfeebled. It's probably a handful of nutrients are down by something like 10 or 20 percent, uh, in maybe some cases a little bit more. But that is still a much, much better food than so much of the processed food we eat. So if you could just get the flavor back in a tomato, it would be a wonderful nutritional choice. The fact is, modern crops still need to be grown in fields. They are still, they are still highly complex biological beings. So uh, we haven't gotten so powerful that we can ruin them the way we've, you know, ruined soft drinks and crackers and potato chips and so forth. Don't you think um, plant breeders over time will just do what the flavor in industry has done over time and gain the system in favor of a few big hits? Um, and so we find ourselves back at the beginning. I, I've explored that idea. At this point, I don't think we're capable of doing that. Um, I think the other thing is, I don't think it's just as simple as saying, you know, let the plant breeders figure it out. We all need to be more conscious consumers. Um, we want food to be convenient, cheap, and easy. And food, it, most of the time, can't be any of these things. We have to be intelligent consumers. We have to know where our food is coming from, and we have to care about how it's made. But I think so much, the problem that we have isn't that people are eating too many commodity tomatoes and not enough organic heirloom tomatoes. The problem is people aren't eating tomatoes, period. They're eating potato chips and they're drinking soft drinks. So I think if we can get the flavor of ordinary fruits and vegetables better, that will do so much more to lure people into eating them in the first place. Now, does that say it ends there? I don't think so. I think we will always be looking at ways to improve not only the flavor, but the quality of what we eat. But but we have been so fixated for 50 years on nutrients, and that's not working. We have to make the food that we eat, the good food, delicious. And that's the way to get people to eat, eat the right food, is to make it delicious. You mentioned earlier in your research for the, um, the book on steak that um, eating pleasure in beef is closely associated with terroir, uh, the pastures that cattle graze, which are influence, influenced by the soils that pastures grow in. Shouldn't any response to the flavour crisis, if that's what it is, begin in the soil? Building fertile soils has benefits that not only flow upwards into our food system and our state of health, but outwards, because fertile soils harvest water better, they cycle nutrients better, and they're more stable in flood and drought. So if we are, fixed, if we are to fix the food system, shouldn't we start at the beginning? Uh, yes, I, and I agree with that, and I think any farmer, uh, just as grape farmers who produce 
grapes used for excellent wine um, think more about than just the grape. They think about the health of their land and the entire farm. That's how all farmers should think. If farmers were incentivized to produce quality, I think they would be incentivized to think about these things. Um, right now, the way we pay farmers, which is dollars per pounds, that's the last thing on their mind. They're just thinking about output. So I agree with you, but I think in some ways we're talking about the same thing. Yes, no, I, I acknowledge that. How has the Dorito effect been received? I'm particularly interested in the feedback from McCormick's. Uh, I have not heard from McCormick. Um, I don't know what they think. I think big industry won't care about it until they need to. Um, at this point, it hasn't... Um, it ha it, you know, it's just beginning. It's just been out a month. But at this point, I don't know if they feel scared. And if they do, I don't know what their response is. The one thing I'm aware of, though, is that increasingly large companies want to be on the right side of this. They realize um, it's a losing war to try and uh, fight the wrong fight publicly. So, you know, I think some large food companies can be part of the solution. Um, we haven't always seen that, but I think we could see that. And that's what I would hope to see. So, so we'll see. Yeah, no, I hope you're right. After you wrap something up like this, you're inevitably, inevitably going to smite your brow over something you should have included. Is there appendix that you would have liked to have written in retrospect? I think one of the things I hear from a lot of people is they want even more information on how they should eat. So I don't know if that's something I could have added to the book. That might be a, a, an entire follow-up book uh, in and of itself. You gave some dot points, didn't you? I did give a few points and people seem to want more. So maybe I'll follow up with a, uh, almost a more practical book about how one can use flavor as a guide to eating well. Uh, I, I think our flavor system works really well if we let it work. Yes. Well, that um, answers my next question, which is, what is your next venture? It is. It might, it might just be that. Um, there, there were so many things that interested me in this book. So, uh, but I, um, I think for the moment, I'll be continuing to write about food. A lot of leads, yes. A lot of leads to follow. That's right. There are a lot of books about what ails the modern food system, and, and they can get tiring after a while. But the Dorito effect carries a lot of new information very lightly. It's a lively provocative read and I can recommend it to anyone who ever bought food in a packet. Thank you Mark Schatzka for joining me on the Good Land Project and all the best with whatever comes next. Thank you so much it was a real pleasure to chat. You've been listening to the Good Land Project podcast. A full transcript of this conversation is available on the website www.goodlandproject no spaces between the words.com.au